It's really important to understand what's actually happening in our body when we receive those vaccines. It's enough of an exposure that their immune system can see it and get trained. There's a couple reasons why we were able to develop this vaccine. All of the same steps and safety measures that we normally use to test vaccines or test any pharmaceutical were still used and, and abided by. We didn't, we didn't take any shortcuts there. All Things Con Amor is the pursuit of holistic health, wellness, happiness, love, the things that really set our soul on fire. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to All Things Con Amor. I am your host, Stephanie, and today we are discussing all things COVID vaccine related. As this podcast pursues health and wellness, my goal was to provide you all with a knowledgeable source to really break down all things regarding the vaccine. It also pursues the things we love, and as I love science, we are delving into the most common questions surrounding the COVID vaccine with Dr. Stacy Fanning. I am delighted and grateful to share her knowledge on this platform. Dr. Fanning, has a PhD in immunology and molecular pathology and has since focused on fascinating research while simultaneously serving as one of my wonderful professors. Dr. Fanning is a wealth of knowledge and provides clear answers to questions such as, is the vaccine safe? Was it rushed? Will it affect fertility? And can you get COVID after being vaccinated? Among others. For reference, immunology is the study of the immune system, and this makes Dr. Fanning the perfect and reliable source to help us understand the vaccine. My goal is for every listener to come out of this episode feeling like they are making an educated decision about getting the vaccine. So first and foremost, thank you so much for being here with me today. I am so excited to share your uh, wisdom and knowledge and expertise with everyone. So to start off, for the average person that only really knows the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, can you break down how it is that the COVID vaccine works? Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me. I really look forward to this opportunity. I'm, I'm going to start with talking about just how vaccines work in general. You know, I think most of us have gotten some vaccines in our lifetime. So it's really important to understand what's actually happening in our body when we receive those vaccines. So the immune system basically is geared towards combating any infectious agent that we might encounter. And the unique thing about the immune system is that it can be trained to work even better. So the first time we see a particular infectious agent and get infected by that agent, our body will have a response, hopefully clear that infectious bacteria or virus or, or whatever it is that we caught. And now our immune system is primed to fight that pathogen the next time that we see it, which I think is a big part of what makes the immune system so great is that we can just continually train it so that it can get better and better at fighting everything that our body might encounter. So really vaccination stems from that whole characteristic of the immune system that we can train it to work even better. So the goal of vaccination is to expose a person to an infectious agent in a controlled way in which they won't get the illness that that bacteria or that virus causes, but it's enough of an exposure that their immune system can see it and get trained so that next time they do encounter that in nature, 
they'll be one step ahead of the game. Their immune system will already be primed to fight it. So that's the basic goal of immunization or vaccination is to allow our body that training, you know, just like we want to train our bodies via exercise and and to run marathons, you know, you're just not just going to hop into a marathon and run it no problem. You need to practice and vaccination allows our bodies to practice in a safe way. So we're going to use something like a weakened version of a virus, or we're going to take just a protein from a bacteria or a virus. And that's what we're going to use to show our immune system so that it can kind of see what it's dealing with ahead of the, ahead of the game and get prepped for, for actually fighting it off in nature. And we know from our long history with vaccinations that this has been very, very successful and it has reduced the rates of infectious disease, you know, ex- exponentially with all the vaccines that we've been able to generate. And because of that background knowledge and all that hard work over decades, we've been able to really generate this COVID vaccine with such speed and such efficacy that is really just an, a, a testament to our science. So moving into a little bit more specifics about the COVID vaccines, the clinical trials for COVID vaccines, you know, started very early. As soon as the virus was identified, it was recognized as being in that same family of coronavirus as SARS, which we dealt with a decade or two ago. So we already had some underlying research in that field, which was helpful. And investigators started exploring all different opportunities for generating a vaccine to this agent. Like I said, there's multiple ways that that we can vaccinate. We could use weakened forms of the virus. We can use pieces of protein from the virus. We can just take the virus and, and kill it completely and then inject that. So all of those methods are still actively under investigation. So, you know, from anywhere early, very early stages of investigation where they're just using cells and culture to, you know, some early clinical trials. But what found the most efficacy early on was what are known as the mRNA vaccines. So the mRNA vaccines, this technology has actually been around for a while. You know, everybody's calling it a new vaccine. But, you know, for at least a decade, we've been studying this technology and its potential use for vaccination. What makes this a little bit different than some of the other vaccine formulations that we currently have licensed by the FDA in our current clinical practice is that it uses genetic material. And this genetic material is in the form of mRNA. So just to to take a step back for people who are are non-science people, when the body makes a protein, it uses the instructions that are encoded by our DNA. So I think most people, even non-science people are familiar with DNA. It's found in the nucleus of our cells. It's the code that basically is the instructions for life, that, that classic double helix, which looks like a twisted ladder. People have seen, you know, pictures of it all over the place. Um, it's basically our blueprint. The easiest it's our blueprint. Every, the exactly. way everyone else kind of describes it is it's just the blueprint for everything we make. Right. So the blueprint is used basically with a middleman, right? So that DNA blueprint is very important to our cells. We want to protect it. We don't want to damage it. So we keep it kind of tightly bundled in our nucleus, right? We want to save that, those instructions. We don't want to lose those instructions because it's really important for our cells. So in order to basically get or read the message of our DNA and get it to, to make the proteins that our body needs, we use this RNA middleman. 
So it's called messenger RNA because basically what it does is it reads the DNA in the nucleus. It creates a new molecule from that DNA called RNA. The RNA goes into the cytoplasm of the cell outside the nucleus. And then there, that mRNA is going to be read by some other things in the cell to generate the proteins that, that our cells need. And this mRNA middleman is, again, allowing us to protect the DNA. We don't want to damage those original instructions. And it allows us to have a little bit more control over the expression of certain things. You know, we can manipulate mRNA a little bit more. We can determine how long we want it to hang around in the cell, depending upon how much of that protein we want. So mRNA is, is really that, that crucial middle piece of the puzzle. So what these two vaccines do, the, the Pfizer vaccine and, and the Moderna vaccine, is they take a piece of mRNA that's from the viral genome of the coronavirus. So viruses also have nucleic acids, some have DNA, some have RNA. And so what we, we've been able to do is take the piece of mRNA from the coronavirus that codes for a very specific protein, which is the spike protein. So I think most people have seen pictures <laughs> or at least illustrations of the coronavirus. You know, they're all over the news these days, that ball that has all those little spiky projections coming out of it. That's basically what the viral particle looks like. And those little spikes on the outside of that ball are called spike protein. And that spike protein is really integral in getting the coronavirus into the cell. So all viruses need to enter a cell to be infectious. That's where they're going to live. That's where they're going to do their replication and, and make more little virus babies, so to say. So what we've done is generated the mRNA that codes for that spike protein. And by doing that and exposing our immune systems to what's eventually going to be this spike protein, we're going to generate an immune response against that spike protein. And that's going to be critical because again, the spike protein is what's required by the virus to enter our cells. So if we can generate immune components like antibodies that will bind to and target that spike protein. Now we've basically put that virus in handcuffs. We've just gobbed it up with antibody and now it can't even touch our cells. So it can't get in. And that's really the way that this vaccine works is using an RNA to code for a viral protein that we then use to direct our immune system. That was such a beautiful illustration of it because I have seen the memes and how once we take the mRNA from the vaccine, our body can recognize it and then be like, no, you can't come in the cell. But I didn't really understand the connection between the spike protein being what allowed the coronavirus to get into the cell. So thank you for that. And so how exactly is it safe for us to be getting this mRNA from the coronavirus? So that's a really good question. I know that's one that comes up frequently from a lot of people. So one of the things with, with all vaccines in general, you know, is people are always nervous. I'm going to get that vaccine and it's going to give me that illness. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I got the flu vaccine and it gave me the flu. Well, that's really in most instances impossible because especially in this case, we're, we're not giving you the virus. We're just giving you one tiny component of that, that viral, that whole viral particle. There's no threat to the vaccine causing the illness. I think in addition, people get skeptical when they hear anything that has to do with the genome or genetic material. I think, unfortunately, that has a lot to do with 
the media and you're always hearing things about non-GMO food and, you know, you don't want anything that's genetically modified. And I think it's unfortunate that that's gotten such a bad rap and negative connotation because we can do a lot of genetic manipulation that's completely safe and is very pervasive in our culture and our environment, and people don't even realize it. One of the things, and I was surprised to find this out a couple of years ago, is that all of the bananas that exist are genetically modified so that they don't have seeds in them. <laughs> so things that we don't even recognize have been genetically modified or genetically modified. So I don't think automatically people should, you know, hear something having to do with genetics or, or genoming and get turned off by it. One of the things to remember with this vaccine, so both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, and then we also have a new vaccine that's been approved, which is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that uses a, a slightly different platform that I can talk about in a little while. But both of them in, involve genetic material. The Johnson & Johnson one involves DNA and, and the Pfizer Moderna involves mRNA. But it's important to note that that genetic material is not altering our own genetic material in any fashion, right? So we'll start with the mRNA vaccines. First of all, the mRNA is delivered in basically like a, a little capsule. It's really something that protects the mRNA as we're delivering it. And it's delivered very local. It's in the arm. It's an intramuscular injection. So it's not going to start circulating throughout our whole entire body. It's really just the cells in that location that are going to come in contact with the ingredients and, and the material inside that vaccine. Those little particles that contain the mRNA are going to enter those local cells. And once they enter, they release the mRNA. The mRNA stays in the cytoplasm. It doesn't go in the nucleus where our DNA is. So there's no risk of it touching or interacting with our DNA. And the thing about mRNA is that it's very unstable. This is a little bit of a, of a catch-22. You know, the, the benefit of it is that it's going to get into the cells. It's going to allow us to read that mRNA and make the spike protein that we need. And then it's going to degrade. So we don't have to worry about it hanging around long-term and causing all sorts of trouble or interacting with things we don't want it to, or continually making spike protein, which, you know, obviously we, we don't need spike protein made long-term. The mRNA will, you know, hang around for a very short period of time before it eventually gets degraded. So that's, that's one of the benefits of mRNA. One of the downsides of that is that that's what's created a little bit of a logistic challenge with using this technology, because it also means it's shelf unstable. And that's why we need to keep these um, vaccines cold, you know, either at minus 80 or minus 20. They need to be frozen. Once they're thawed, they need to be administered, you know, within 30 minutes to an hour. And that's why we see a lot of vaccine clinics at the end of the day saying, we have extra doses that we thawed and we have nobody to give them to. If you could come to our clinic in the next hour, we can give you this vaccine. So that's been one of the, one of the challenges. But in terms of, of the safety of using that genetic material, I think it is incredibly safe, you know, even more safe than some of the other common vaccines that we've been giving for decades. When it comes to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that one, like I said, also uses genetic material. This time it uses the DNA, also DNA that codes for the spike protein. And it uses basically a harmless viral particle. There's a, a virus called adenovirus, which causes the common cold, but we've been able to manipulate the adenovirus in the lab 
to basically make it harmless. It's just what we call a vector. We can take that adenovirus and we can put whatever genetic information we want to inside. So in this case, we're gonna put a little bit of the DNA, that is the instructions for making the spike protein. And then we're going to inject those viral particles. Same thing, they're injected locally, they're not spreading to any other part of the body. And those, vi those adenoviral vectors, once they insert into the cell, they're gonna release the DNA and those adenoviral vectors are completely incapable of replicating. So you have no risk of making more virus. They basically get in the cell and then they degrade. The DNA in this case will go into the nucleus because that's where DNA goes, but it doesn't integrate at all into our normal DNA. So you'll just have the short, short strand of DNA that gets into the nucleus. And then from the nucleus, it gets turned into mRNA and then the mRNA gets made into the spike protein. So it, it's basically, you know, still working from the same angle, just, you know, taking a slightly different approach. But again, I just want to highlight that with all of these vaccines, there is no interaction at all with our normal genome. So there's no risk involved in that arena. I also think it's interesting that people might get so nervous about us injecting them with the DNA and mRNA that we have very carefully tested and checked. And they forget that whenever they pick up any type of, I'm sure almost everyone listening to this has been treated with antibiotics at some point in their lifetime. Anything they've ever had that needed that type of medication has its own DNA and RNA as well. So if anything, it would be preferable for us to, to get something that we have already tested and made sure isn't going to be replicating and messing with us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. So that's the biggest difference really between Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson is just whether they use the mRNA or the DNA. Right. So the formulations are different. There is also another slight difference with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in that it only requires one dose, which is different than, than the mRNA vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna were tested and approved for two doses about three to four weeks apart. So that's also going to be really beneficial from, from the public health scenario because it's a lot easier to get people in for just one shot than, you know, getting people in and then having to worry about scheduling the, to come back in this, you know, pretty tight time frame for their second shot. Um, so, so that's been uh, really beneficial to have that other vaccine that can be used in that fashion. I know, you know, a lot of hospitals uh, who are having patients admitted, you know, for inpatient procedures, they're using the Johnson and Johnson vaccine saying, Hey, while you're here, let's give you the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And then once you're released, you're vaccinated. We don't have to worry about rescheduling you. You're good to go. So that's been really nice. And again, because the Johnson and Johnson vaccine uses DNA with the adenovirus vector, it's a little bit more shelf stable. So uh, it only needs to be stored at refrigeration. Again, that allows for more accessibility, less concerns, you know, about the shelf life of the vaccine. So thank you so much for explaining the difference and how they work. But I think what most people are really going to want to know, because I wanted to know the difference in how they work, but I think everyone else is going to care about what, if it really matters, which one you get. Because so many people are saying, oh, I only want this one. And I, at this point, I'm like, as long as we get everyone vaccinated with one of them, you know, but uh, what, what, what is your opinion on that? So there is, you know, has been slight differences in the um, efficacy of the vaccine. So the, the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines 
the initial data that was presented for, for those during the clinical trial showed that they were about 95% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID cases, which is, I mean, amazing. It's excellent. It's, it's up there with like the top performing vaccines. So that was really, really great news to hear. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine had a little bit of mixed results. Um, I think the, the data that they published said it was around 72% effective in uh, preventing severe COVID. So I, I think it stems from that. A lot of people hear the 95% and they're like, wow, well, I want the 95% one. Well, you know, why wouldn't I get that one versus the 72% one? But I think it's important to remember that even 72% is, is really great effectiveness. You know, if you want to put it in relation to our seasonal flu vaccine, that ranges from, you know, 60 to 70 and a good year, it's maybe 75% effective. Um, so 72% effectiveness is really good. And the other thing that I think a lot of these health providers and, and scientists are, are trying to convey is that all of the vaccines were 100% effective in preventing death. So there weren't any COVID deaths in the clinical trials for vaccinated people. I think that's important to remember. And in addition, if you're just looking at severe hospitalizations, that too was really high with all of the vaccines. So if that's the metric that you're using, then all of the vaccines that are available are, are going to be great. I think that's important to keep in mind. And you know, the recommendation that I've been giving to people is that when you're eligible and you get an appointment for a vaccine, take it <laughs> and get whatever vaccine you can, you know, like the, the goal here is, is just to be protected as, as soon as, as possible. And like I said, you know, that Johnson and Johnson vaccine is going to be really beneficial when it comes to really that vaccine outreach you know, when it starts to become a good proportion, of the general public has become vaccinated. Now we need to vaccinate those hard to reach people, you know, maybe those people who live in more rural locations and don't have the opportunity to get to a vaccine clinic or get to a hospital. Now, you know, we want to take it on the road. We want to go to those areas, those underserved areas, those rural areas, or if we're international, you know, some underdeveloped countries where it would be a lot harder to transport something like the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine and keep it safe, keep it frozen, and then also have to deal with giving multiple shots. So I think the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is going to be really useful for reaching out to those, those harder to reach communities. That's so amazing. I'm, I'm so glad that they came out with it when you put it that way, because I hadn't really considered the long-term effects of having to get two doses for everyone in. And so I know you briefly referred to the fact that we have experience with the vaccine that we made in terms of COVID being related to SARS. So I know that was developed earlier. And how would that connect to this huge fear that people have of it being rushed and saying that it was developed way too quickly to be safe? Yeah. So that's another good question. And that's another one that, that I'm hearing a lot. And I think it's important to stress that number one, all of the same steps and safety measures that we normally use to test vaccines or test any pharmaceutical were still used and, and abided by. We didn't, we didn't take any shortcuts there. There's a couple of reasons why we were able to develop this vaccine. One, I already mentioned the fact that we had some foundational research already from those related coronaviruses. So that already put us 
a little bit ahead of the game. We knew the spike protein early on was going to be the target that we wanted to hit for vaccination. We'd already done years of research with mRNA vaccines. We knew we can quickly you know, generate that mRNA that codes for that spike protein. And another reason why we were able to generate this so quickly was that all of the attention and all of the focus of the medical and scientific community was on this one virus, this one disease, which is like nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime. I think what people need to recognize is normally during non-pandemic times, you know, this, the scientific community is researching all different things, you know, all different vaccine possibilities and pharmaceuticals and diseases. And all of a sudden, everything stopped and everybody shifted focus. I can tell you from my own personal experience, you know, I I've have history doing research with bone marrow transplants and other types of immunotherapy and the lab that I work in, our PI contacted me, you know, right after this and said, okay, we're going to do this new study looking at convalescent plasma for COVID. We basically stopped everything else that we were doing and it was like, okay, Let's look at let's look at this. Let's see what's going on when we did convalescent plasma from patients who have recovered from COVID to current active patients. So that's what was happening in the scientific community. And that's what allowed us to move quicker. We saw collaborations that we've never seen before. You know, normally science is very competitive, uh, unfortunately. So by having people team up who normally don't team up, even pharmaceutical companies who are staunch competitors were working together. So that allowed us to progress so much quicker. And then another reason why we were able to get the vaccine out so quickly was because normally during this whole process of of the clinical trials, when you're, you're testing the safety, you're testing the efficacy, looking for side effects, all of that has to get approved. And then once it gets approved, now the companies say, okay, good, we got the approval. Now let's start making that vaccine. Let's, let's start, you know, upping production and getting enough doses. And, you know, that can take another six months to a year. What happened in this case was all of those vaccines who were the really good candidates early on, those front runners, they got funding to start producing vaccine doses before we even had the results of, of those phase three clinical trials. So while they were still testing, we said, let's go under the assumption that this is going to work. And let's make millions of doses and have them ready to go. So the second we can get that approval, we have those results. We can say, yes, this is safe. This is effective. We can start giving it to the people. And that also saved us a lot of time here. So, you know, I I personally have, have no concerns that this was rushed. And I think that's evident by the support of the scientific and medical community, right? As physicians and as scientists, you know, we we understand these processes. And if we had concerns, then we would speak up. We wouldn't be the first in line to be getting the shot of which clearly we are. So I, I think that's a, a further testament to the support that this vaccine has. And um, the fact that that we have uh, confidence in the way that it was tested. Yes, absolutely. One of my mom's friends actually got in an argument with one of her friends. And her argument was basically like, why would you not get the vaccine knowing that the doctors that I know are the smartest people that I know, and they're the first ones to get it. And so clearly if something was going on, the doctors would not be getting it. So that was kind of just like a good 
step back and perspective in terms of who is accepting this with open arms. In terms of another fear and misconception, I know that there have been some type of weird rumors that it might affect fertility. And if we're being completely candid, that was my only concern when I got it, because I was like, what happens if in 10 years, this affects my children, my future children or my ability to have children? But is there any scientific basis to that rumor at all whatsoever? Yeah. So this one, you know, shocked me when I first started hearing it because I a lot of times those misconceptions are based on on some sort of fact you know there's something underlying that that gets skewed along the way and when I first heard it I was like what where would that even come from you know I don't recognize that as a common vaccine fear we don't really hear that as uh, a typical reason to avoid other vaccines so I was a little bit surprised and looked into it a little bit more. I think it might have first stemmed from the fact, again, that this uses genetic material. And so I think the link between, okay, now I'm I'm putting genetic material on my body, you know, could that potentially affect fertility? Could it get into my eggs somehow or or something like that? That's what, what I think maybe, you know, some of those fears came from. But like I said, there's absolutely no risk of that happening. You know, it's injected locally. The vaccine does not go anywhere else in your body besides that tiny spot on your arm. We already talked about how, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, very unstable. So that mRNA is going to get degraded. And even those spike proteins are going to get degraded over time. Protein also gets degraded over time. So there's no fear of any of those materials really getting disseminated throughout the body. And for sure, they're not going to end up your your ovaries or anything. So I really think that that's where a lot of that stemmed from. Um, I did do a little bit more digging around and I did come across that again on you know social media, there were reports of claims that the antibodies that are generated by the vaccine cross-react with proteins, you know, in the placenta or in the uterus or, or something like that. And I poked around a little bit more to see where that came from. And honestly, there, there's no scientific basis for that whatsoever. It's just something that started spreading on social media because it, it used sort of fancy terms. It talked about a specific protein that's in the placenta. I think that made it more plausible. You know, and that's the, the danger of misinformation. You know, the, the more scientific words that are scattered in there, the more, you know, believable it is to an everyday person. So I actually did find some reports of clinicians who also saw the same misinformation or had heard it from one of their friends. And they, they did a study. They looked to see if there were any potential for the antibodies that are generated either to the COVID vaccine or COVID infection itself can cross-react with some of those common proteins. And they found nothing, no cross-reactivity. They researched it. They couldn't find any other study that even looked at this. So it is just a fortunate rumor that has just caught fire and spread throughout and sounds just plausible enough for people to believe it, which is, is really unfortunate and really a big hurdle that the medical community faces in in trying to put out all these fires and and make people feel comfortable. It's just the unfortunate nature of the world these days is it's just too easy for that misinformation to spread. 
Yes, that was why I was so excited to have you on because I feel like people are so torn about which media news outlet to believe about things right now, especially in terms of medicine. And so having someone of your background and your knowledge about it was, I felt like the best way to help inform people because for being honest, they're not going to look up the scientific articles being put out. Some of those abstracts are difficult for even me to read. And like I said, I knew the entire fertility thing was super, super irrational for me to be afraid of. But because I had read something about it somewhere, I there was this inkling of fear. Yeah. And so I, I'm really grateful for that reassurance from you. And now I'm seeing a lot of fears of serious side effects. So what would you say in terms of that? So with the side effects that we're seeing, First of all, you know, most of the side effects are relatively mild. Um, I think some people are experiencing things that are a little bit more severe than what they would normally encounter maybe with the seasonal flu vaccine. Those serious adverse events are, are very, very rare. The side effects that we most commonly see are things like fever, fatigue, obviously local pain from the injection, maybe some redness, some swelling, some headaches. By far, that's, that's the majority of what people are encountering. And the thing to keep in, in mind when we have those side effects is that that's actually the signs that our immune system is working, that our immune system is recognizing something. In general, a lot of the symptoms that you have when you're sick aren't really due to what you are infected with, but they're due to your immune response. So when you're tired, when you have a fever, when you have no appetite, when your nose is running, that's all signs that your immune system is, is activated and it's trying to combat this virus. That, that um, initial response and that, that inflammation that we see at that localized uh, injection site is actually a really important signal to our body that we need our immune response to get activated. We're, we're, we've been exposed to something. This thing could be potentially damaging. We want our immune system activated. That's really what we're experiencing when we have those side effects. You know, I, I know a lot of people who've been vaccinated now and the range of things that people are feeling is pretty broad. I've already been vaccinated and luckily my side effects were completely mild. Again, arm pain touched, you know, hurt when I touched it. I was a little bit more tired, but you know, I'm a mom, so I'm tired all the time. <laughs> but luckily, other than that, but I, I do know some people who had a little bit more generalized body pains, some, you know, fevers, shivers, but all of them are short term dissipate within a day, day and a half. And again, you know, I try and reassure everybody that's great. That's a, that's a sign that your immune system is doing something. It recognized that vaccine and now it's doing what it's supposed to do. I said, I was almost disappointed. I didn't have more of a reaction. I wanted to be like, are you awake in there? Are you, are you doing something? So I think people, you know, definitely don't need to fear those, those types of effects. And it's all short term, you know, I, you might feel not so great for a day or two, but to know that after that you're you're protected from this very serious illness, it's something you can deal with to get that protection. When it comes to more severe side effects, there's always a concern with allergic reactions. Fortunately, with these vaccines, there's there's not a lot in there. You know, it's not generated in eggs like some vaccines are. The flu vaccine is made in eggs, so people have egg allergies. You might need to worry or 
or some other ingredients. These vaccines don't have a lot of extra ingredients in them, which is nice. For people who have a history of severe allergic reactions or in particular reactions to other vaccinations, they do recommend that extra wait period after the, the shot just to make sure. Again, those allergic reactions are going to occur within 30 minutes. Okay, so it's, it's just that 30 minute waiting period. Once that 30 minutes passes, then those people are in the clear. There's no need to worry about anything long-term. Allergic reactions are going to happen quickly. And I think, you know, the recommendation for even people who have had reactions is that they still recommend you get the vaccine because those allergic reactions are treatable. You know, we, we know how to stop that reaction. So as long as you're in a situation where you're being observed, if that occurs, we know how to monitor you. We know how to offset that reaction. Again, it's a cost-benefit scenario. The unfortunate effects of COVID-19 infection are going to definitely outweigh the potential for any allergic reaction that we can treat. And as far as I know, that's really, you know, the main side effects. Any other effects that have been reported, you know, anytime people report side effects from vaccines, there's there's a whole national system to, to do it. You know, anybody can enter that system and indicate it if they've had any sort of reaction. But just because there's been a reaction after doesn't mean it was caused by the vaccine. And that's something that's important to remember. Very early on when the vaccine first started to, to go out to the public, I saw a lot of articles online and I even had a couple people send me things that was these real weird anecdotal stories from one singular person. This person got the COVID vaccine and two days later, their tongue swelled. They couldn't talk. And it's important to, to remind them that one incident does, does not make causality. All of these incidences are, are investigated to ensure that it was actually the vaccine that caused it. You know, just because somebody has cardiac arrest a couple of days after the vaccine. They might have had it regardless. Exactly. Yes. Cardiac arrest is unfortunately a common occurrence. So you can't automatically correlate the administering of the vaccine with particular outcomes. You really want, want to look for patterns. If patterns emerge, um, then that's that's something to maybe put on pause. But as far as I know up to now, and now, you know, millions of people have been vaccinated and we still are not seeing any serious adverse events with, with these three vaccines. Thank you so much for reaffirming that, again, we haven't seen any patterns that would be a cause for a serious concern or fear. Um, and for everyone's reference, I am pulling from questions, some questions I had myself, and then some questions I had submitted to me by other people. Uh, so the next question on the list was, would you get it? But Dr. Fanning already answered that she has gotten it. And I guess I'll chime in with my own answer for this one. I've gotten it as well. And my only serious side effect was just that I had body chills the next day. And like I said, I was happy that meant that my body was going to remember that spike protein. So if I do come in contact with the real COVID, my cells are going to know that we're not going to let that in. It's going to recognize it. And then also, as I said earlier, my only, only kind of, I knew it was irrational, but my only concern was the whole fertility thing. And we know that this is not a scientific thing to be worried about. So overall, I think the peace of mind you get out of knowing you're not going to have any of those weird long-term symptoms of COVID. There are a lot of COVID, they call them long haulers that end up with super severe symptoms. Knowing that 
like two shots later, you're not going to have to worry about ending up with those things is overall so worth it for me. So now transitioning into a few more, like if you were to get vaccinated post-vaccination, how that works. If someone is vaccinated, can they still get COVID? So should I still be concerned? Yeah. So, you know, no vaccine is 100% effective. So, you know, as, as good as these mRNA vaccines are, they're only 95% effective. So that means, you know, there is a chance 5% of those who, who do get the vaccine can still contract COVID. What makes it a little bit more problematic and confusing with COVID is that we have so many cases of individuals who are infected with COVID and who are asymptomatic right? Don't ever come down with any sort of symptoms. That's where the concerns lie with vaccination and sort of just letting the reins loose after we get vaccinated. Because again, the clinical trials that were done for these vaccines, their their primary endpoint was looking for symptomatic COVID uh, infections and for you know severe infections with the hospitalization and death, their their endpoints during those weren't looking at asymptomatic cases. So now you know once the vaccine was approved, those trials were finished. Now those companies are starting to dive a little bit deeper. There's more studies looking at how effective the vaccines are with preventing asymptomatic transmission. So I actually just looked this up right beforehand to see sort of you know if there was any published data and there was just something that was released last week showing that the vaccine was effective at reducing asymptomatic transmission by about 80% which again is great. That's really That's fantastic news. news. Um, yeah. Very early data. You know, we still want to compile some data. We, we want to have that replicated in some other studies. I think that one was just looking at the Pfizer vaccine. I'm not sure if it also looked at Moderna or Johnson and Johnson, but, but that's good news. But until we have that data, we still want to be cautious, even if we've been vaccinated. So recently, the CDC has put out some guidelines, which were very helpful because the very early, you know, weeks, months after the vaccine rollout, that was like a big question, like, okay, I'm vaccinated, like, what can I do now? I think it's really clear that that vaccinated people can see each other inside without masks in close quarters. So if I'm vaccinated, you're vaccinated, you know, I could come over and share a cup of coffee. When it comes to vaccinated people interacting with people who aren't vaccinated, the rule of thumb that the CDC is giving is that it's okay for a vaccinated individual to come in contact with an unvaccinated individual or a single household where individuals are unvaccinated, as long as those unvaccinated people are low risk, right? Because there is still a chance, right? 5% chance that somebody who's vaccinated can still get COVID. And if that COVID is asymptomatic, they wouldn't even know it. And, you know, they could potentially pass that on to somebody who's been unvaccinated. But when it comes to the safety of that unvaccinated person, you know, you again, it's all about risk benefit. You, you need to weigh the risks. If that person is low risk then in general, it's, it's okay to, to spend time with that person inside unmasked. 
what we don't want to be doing is going into, you know, large mixed groups where it's a mix of people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. You know, now we're we're mixing different households and, and that's just going to allow for um, more potential spread, you know, between unvaccinated and vaccinated people. So as more people get vaccinated, we'll have more confidence that we can start broadening our circles. And that's exactly what the CDC has indicated, was that, you know, these are the recommendations right now. And as COVID cases drop and vaccination increases, we'll be able to revise those recommendations as we move along. But because we are still so early in the game, I think less than 15% of the total population is completely vaccinated. We still need to be careful because there's still a lot of unvaccinated people out there. And really, when it comes to vaccination, obviously, we are thrilled about the fact that we can protect ourselves, but it's also about our community. We don't want to pass illness to our community. I think that's what makes this disease and an infectious disease in general so different, a different way to think about things and about health. So people are used to thinking about their own health and saying, you know, well, it's my body. I can decide if I want to eat that cheeseburger. You're worried about my high cholesterol or my heart disease. But when it comes to infectious disease, you're not the only one who's affected. Infectious disease is something that spreads from person to person. So we really need to think about our communities and our neighbors and anything that we can do to make our community healthier, not just ourselves. And that's what vaccination is going to do. That was definitely my biggest fear at the beginning of the pandemic was I knew that I keep myself in good shape. I eat healthy. And so I figured I was pretty low risk. If I were to contract it, I wouldn't end up with any type of serious illness. But the biggest fear for me was that I would be an asymptomatic carrier and give it to the sweet little old person at the grocery store and feel responsible that I unknowingly completely altered their life or their family's life. Uh, So I think That's another big reason that I got so much peace of mind out of knowing that I'm much less likely to transmit it to other people. I'm obviously still following precautions, wearing masks everywhere I go, but it's much more reassuring. So I think that those were really the last two questions I had in terms of the uncertainty about whether being vaccinated can prevent you from transmitting the virus. And and you answered that in terms of it's just a little too early to tell. Our focus was shifted on more important things. And now we're, we're paying attention to that as well. But the outcomes are good. And then the very last question was uh, the discussion of whether vaccines are not enough for the population to loosen the restrictions. And I guess you also answered that one as well in terms of if you are vaccinated and there's still that chance that you can pass it on to other people until the majority of us are vaccinated. I really think that's when we're going to be able to get back to normal life. Something that really stuck with me was a graph you showed us in class that had, uh, it it was like a, a little box with a hundred dots on it. And it had, it had whether or not people are vaccinated on one side and then the vaccination on the other side. And it's so easy. Like if you have one dot that's red for it to spread to any other unvaccinated dots in comparison to when more people are vaccinated, it's so much harder for that one sick person to let it spread and move along. I was just going to say that, 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 you know, was, is describing the whole concept of herd immunity, which we've heard about a ton in the news is, is really the goal is to establish enough vaccination so that the virus can no longer roam 
freely through our community, you know, so by uh, reaching those higher levels of vaccination, basically, if a person does get infected, and everybody around them is vaccinated, they have nobody to pass it to. And basically, the virus just just fizzles out. Um, so that's really the, the ultimate goal. And, and when we get to that goal, hopefully sooner rather than later, that's when we really know we're through this. <laughs> we can ease those restrictions. We can not wear masks everywhere we go. But I think it's important to remind people just to be patient. We are all getting antsy, especially with the warm weather. You know, we want to do things. We want to get out, but we still need to, to be safe. We don't, we've, we've worked so hard and, you know, we, we don't want to drop the ball right when we're at the goal line. So just be patient and, and we'll get there. Yes, a, a 2019 summer is so close to being within our reach. Um, <laughs> thank you so, so much for your time, for your, your insight to all of this. That was all Dr. Fanning and I had for you today. I, again, am so grateful for her time and her ability to break down some of these circulating myths and serve as a reliable source for information. If you found this helpful, be sure to share it with others. Furthermore, please ensure to follow current CDC guidelines as the ones we discussed were the guidelines set at the time of recording, which was March 25th, 2021. But hopefully by the time you hear this, cases are lower and trends are improving. I am again sending you all so much gratitude for spending your time with me. You can find us on Instagram at all things con amor or at my name, Stephanie Arnick. We will see you in the next episode. Enjoy the rest of your day.